From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Jennifer, Ariel, Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you guys so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, Please feel free to join my patron, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with the listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Lacey Fletcher. This one comes with my disclaimer disclaimer as the description of the crime scene as well as the autopsy results are quite gruesome, but I decided to include them because I found it important to get the full scale of just how horrible this case truly is. So here we go. Lacey Ellen Fletcher was born on November 25th, 1985. This case is still very new, happening just this year, so background information has been a bit more challenging for me to find, but I will give you what I have found. Lacey's parents are Clay Fletcher and Sheila McCullough Fletcher. Both were in their later 20s when they had Lacey. It is believed they had no other children. Sheila's parents were Amos James and Francis McCullough. Sheila was one of four children three girls, and one boy. When Amos died in 2009, Lacey was listed as a grandchild in his obituary. From as much as I could find, both Sheila and Clay were born and raised in the Baton Rouge area. Other cities they were affiliated with were Slaughter and Baker, Louisiana, both just being north of Baton Rouge to set the scene. This family had lived in this area for at least two generations. It was said that Sheila graduated from high school around 1975, so Clay would have graduated around that time as well as sources state they are the same age. Specifically with regards to Clay, 
I really wasn't able to find anything about his background, other than people who said that, at the time of the discovered crime, locals believed he really had no known living family. Now, Sheila and Clay were described as, according to everyone interviewed for many news sources, every bit the faithful, church-going pillars of their community. Well-respected and liked, Sheila was said to have sung in the church choir. The couple were married, and they had Lacey in 1985. I wasn't really able to find anything about her infancy and early childhood, which is most likely a very positive thing. But remember, this case just became public earlier this year. Nothing stood out that might indicate the troubled waters ahead. So unless more information is released or discovered, it would appear she was well taken care of and loved. In 1994, the couple bought and moved into a modest two-story home on a gravel cul-de-sac when Lacey was about nine years old. Now, absolutely everyone said she was an extremely pleasant and happy child who immediately set to the task of making friends with the other kids in the close neighborhood, and she succeeded. Brownsville Baptist Academy, which is now apparently closed, was located in the northern Baton Rouge area. It was a private school that educated pre-kindergarten through 8th grade students, though there were sources that said ninth grade. It was a small school, boasting only around 190 total students on average enrolled. This is the school that young Lacey attended. Now, I did the math. The average cost for a small, Christian-based, private elementary school then was roughly $3,200 a year, which today averages about $6,500 a year. Of course, this is a rough estimate, as Brownsville Baptist Academy is now closed, of course, but it gives us an idea of the cost of her going there. If the numbers are at least in the ballpark, that would have been around $355 a month for her to go there or around $722 a month today. That is a sizable chunk of change, which leads me to believe that Clay and Sheila worked and made enough money to afford their middle-class house in a quiet area and pay for private tuition. Peers and teachers said she made a point of making newcomers at ease at the now-closed Brownsville Baptist Academy in Baker, Louisiana. Another classmate stated they remembered her as a sweet, kind person. And yet another classmate said, quote, She was one of the first people that I was friends with when I started at the school, and she was already there. End quote. And yet another peer, quote, She was thoughtful. Just sweet is the word I keep coming back to. One of the sweetest people you could ever meet. So very kind. End quote. And still another close friend stated that, quote, Lacey could be quiet, but could also be vocal with her opinions. End quote. So Lacey was quite active at the school and was even on the volleyball team. One of her close friends said that they went to school together for three years before they both left after the end of middle school. That was the highest grade offered at that school. After that, they lost touch. 
From here, the information isn't exactly easy to find, and what was there wasn't exactly easy to interpret either, but from what I could gather, perhaps she attempted ninth grade, but was suffering from terrible social anxiety. A classmate said, quote, I knew she was not your typical teenager. She wasn't as mature as us. She still liked children things, not teenage things, end quote. It was observed that she began to retreat into isolation as her diagnosed autism supposedly allegedly accelerated, and it was the decision of her parents to homeschool her after ninth grade. It was also around this time that Lacey had been treated by a psychologist over a three-year period in her teens for her social anxiety, which is great as it appears her parents were getting her the help she needed. This behavior is, of course, what we want to see out of concerned and loving parents. So far, so good. And then things become a bit of a mystery or take a turn, as they say. Apparently, the last time she saw a physician was when she was 16 years old in 2001. With regards to homeschooling, I couldn't find anywhere that said she actually graduated high school. One must assume she did, but it was not mentioned anywhere specifically. She would have normally been a senior and graduated around 2003. So, from childhood to about the age of 14, everyone said Lacey was a fun, normal kid, albeit slightly immature with regards to her interests. After that, she became quite isolated, not really coming out of the family home that much. Again, we know she was last seen by a physician when she was 16 years old to help her treat that. There doesn't seem to be any information at all with regards to her well-being or what she was up to as she really wasn't seen much. I found a couple of places that said she had been spotted maybe a couple of times going into a store with Sheila, but again, I don't know how reliable that is. When Lacey was 21 years old, so this would have been in 2006, a neighbor man whose sons had gone to school with Lacey saw her outside one day. He said, quote, she appeared fairly physically normal. She was always pretty thin and she was exercising in the road with those small weights you carry, end quote. He was referring to small dumbbells. He described her walking or perhaps jogging up and down their cul-de-sac or their private dead-end road that day. And that was the last time anyone saw Lacey alive. And remember her grandfather's obituary that named her as a grandchild back in 2009? She would have been 24 years old. Did she attend the funeral? Was she among the family in mourning at the gravesite? If not, did any of her mother's family, her cousins, aunts, uncles, even her grandmother ask about her, where she was, or how she was doing? It's hard to say. No one has mentioned that in the media. What we do know is that after that, without a doubt, Lacey never left the house again. The neighbor that had seen her exercising did ask Clay about five years ago how Lacey was doing. Did she go off to college? Did she get married and move on? He said, quote, 
I said, how is Lacey? How's she doing? Has she moved off? Went to college or what? He replied, oh no, she's still here. She's fine. And then changed the subject. And that's it. He didn't explain why he hadn't seen her at all. I just took him at his word. I had absolutely no suspicions about what actually happened at that house over the road from us. No alerts, nothing. End quote. What happened within that house with regards to Lacey for the 12 years since anyone had seen her is completely unknown. The only two people who have the answers are Clay and Sheila Fletcher, her parents. So again, disclaimer, disclaimer. On Saturday, January 1st, 2022, so just this past January, as of this recording, Sheila and Clay decided to take a weekend getaway to where or for what, I don't know. When they returned home Monday, January 3rd, they discovered that Lacey, who was on the couch, wasn't breathing. There is some back and forth as to whether someone was with them and also discovered the body and told them they had better call the police. But regardless, Sheila phoned 911 and reported that her daughter wasn't breathing. Lacey was now 31 years old. Authorities, when entering the house, immediately said the smell was completely overwhelming. One of the officers said, quote, opened the door, walked into the house. There was a stench and odor, feces, fecal material, urine. You couldn't hold your breath, end quote. Here is how the coroner described what he witnessed, and no photos aside from the couch itself have been published due to their horrifying graphic content. He said Lacey appeared to be nearly buried up to her shoulders in a wide and deep hole in the couch. It was visually obvious that her emaciated body had been in that exact spot over the years, moving around at least a bit, thus rubbing through the cushioning. She was found slumped over on her left side with her right arm across the top half of her dangerously thin body near her neck. She was completely naked except for a small blue patterned t-shirt which was pulled up on her chest and was not covering her breasts. Her eyes were hauntingly wide open, staring. Her mouth was also open. They were able to see a full set of front teeth it appeared she had been sitting with her legs crossed under her. The coroner described her face as being covered in large and angry red blotches. Human feces was smeared over nearly her entire body. It was observed that feces was also matted in her hair and even inside her ears. There were bugs, including maggots, on her remains and insect bites all over her body. The brown leather couch that she had obviously been sitting on for years was alongside a wall with a gap from the wall of about 18 inches. Behind and under the couch was a large wet patch on the floor directly behind and under Lacey's body, which was believed to be urine. To the right, beside the couch, was a gray mobile toilet, as well as a neatly folded pile of clean clothing. In front of the couch, just a few feet away, 
was a low black table covered in clutter, including a number of lotion bottles, talcum powder, a package of wet wipes, nasal spray, a box with a lid that had a child's photo in it, among other items. This would, of course, indicate that, at least at some point, her parents were looking after her and her wounds. Found between the couch and the table were two stacks of DVDs, but the titles were not listed. It was indicated that they were children's movies. As the police and the coroner were trying to take in what they were seeing, the coroner stated, quote, The father was completely emotionless. The mother's head was lying down on between her legs. She was weeping a little bit, end quote. Clay showed zero emotion whatsoever. Not sadness, not concern, not shame, nothing. Sheila, on the other hand, did at least shed some tears. So once they got Lacey's body to the coroner's office and on the steel table for her forensic examination, more photos were taken. They then got a much more clear picture of what had happened to her. She was emaciated, weighing just 96 pounds or 43 and a half kilos. Upon closer inspection, the skin on her bottom had literally been worn down and eaten away from the 12 years she hadn't moved from that couch. There were large, raw, yellowish areas where there just simply was no skin. Other areas on her back and bottom were blackened, making it at first impossible to identify exactly what they were looking at. During the autopsy, they discovered that Lacey had very recently consumed bits of foam from inside the couch cushion, as well as her own feces, as was evidenced by the contents of her stomach. It was estimated that she had died between 24 to 48 hours before her mother called for emergency services. And remember, Clay and Sheila had returned from a two-day trip to find their daughter dead and slumped in the disintegrated hole in the couch she had occupied for so long. And this begs the question, was she even alive when they left? The timing is suspicious to say the least. Ruminate on that as you will. Let that marinate and let me know in the comments what you think. The coroner then determined that the cause of her death was severe medical neglect. It stemmed not only from astonishing medical neglect, but also chronic malnutrition, acute starvation, immobility, acute ulcer formation, osteomyelitis, which is bone infection, which led finally to sepsis. And in case some of you aren't familiar with sepsis, the symptoms include fever, difficulty breathing, low blood pressure, fast heart rate, and mental confusion. Without antibiotics and IV fluids, this triggers severe inflammation throughout the body, damaging multiple organ systems, leading them to fail and can result in death. And the topper was that, for whatever it's worth, her remains did test positive for COVID. The coroner was the one that ultimately determined Lacey had been on and not really moved from that couch for at least 12 years. 
When Sheila was asked why Lacey had not been off of that couch in over a decade, she, quote, just stared ahead, end quote, and didn't say anything at first. She then stated that Lacey suffered from social anxiety and severe autism. And don't you worry, we'll touch more on this in a bit. Both Clay and Sheila were adamant that Lacey was, quote, of sound mind to make her own type of decisions, end quote, adding that she never complained about her sores and that Sheila would routinely clean them. They went so far as to say that Lacey flat out refused to leave the living room couch. They defended themselves by claiming to have brought Lacey her meals, but that she urinated and defecated either on the floor or simply on the couch because she was too scared to leave the couch, let alone to use the little portable toilet beside the couch. I found that some sources were alarmingly quick at trying to say that Lacey also suffered from locked-in syndrome, which is a rare neurological disorder characterized by complete paralysis of voluntary muscles, except for the eyes, but the coroner said that is completely false. She had couch foam and feces in her stomach, indicating she had at least moved an arm to consume. In my research, I found a few medical professionals that said she absolutely could not have had locked-in syndrome. So let's look at that. The website rarediseases.org shared an article or report written by Francesca Pistoia, MD, PhD, who is the neurologist and assistant professor of neurorehabilitation, University of Lachia, Italy, and Stephen Loris, MD, PhD, Coma Science Group, University Hospital of Liege, Belgium, aka the Big Guns. The report said, quote, Locked-in syndrome is a rare neurological disorder in which there is complete paralysis of all voluntary muscles except for the ones that control the movements of the eyes. Individuals with locked-in syndrome are conscious and awake but have no ability to produce movements outside of eye movement or to speak. Cognitive function is usually unaffected. Communication is possible through eye movements or blinking. Locked-in syndrome is caused by damage to the pons, a part of the brainstem that contains nerve fibers that relay information to other areas of the brain. Individuals with locked-in syndrome classically cannot consciously or voluntarily chew, swallow, breathe, speak, or produce any movements other than those involving the eyes or the eyelids. Some affected individuals can move their eyes up and down vertically, but not side to side, horizontally. Affected individuals are bedridden and completely reliant on caregivers. Despite physical paralysis, cognitive function is unaffected. Digging into the specific causes, the article goes on to say, quote, Locked-in syndrome is most often caused by damage to a specific part of the brain stem known as the pons. The pons contains important neurological pathways between the cerebrum, spinal cord, and cerebellum. 
In locked-in syndrome, there is an interruption of all the motor fibers running from gray matter in the brain via the spinal cord to the body's muscles and also damage to the centers in the brain stem important for facial control and speaking. Damage to the pons most often results from tissue loss due to lack of blood flow or bleeding. Less frequently, it can be caused by trauma. An infarct can be caused by several different conditions, such as a blood clot or stroke. Additional conditions that can cause locked-in syndrome include infection in certain portions of the brain, tumors, loss of the protective insulation or the myelin that surrounds the nerve cells, inflammation of the nerves, and certain disorders such as ALS. This syndrome most often is seen in adults who are more at risk for brain stroke and bleeding, and this jives with what the medical professionals were saying in the various forums, comments on the news articles on Facebook, Reddit, and so on. They all said this nearly always occurs after a stroke and a brain bleed. And then there are the glaringly obvious arm movements in order for her to, in her starved state, begin to consume cushion foam and her own feces. And then there was also mention of her moving to the floor to relieve herself. So I agree, and it's just my opinion, that Lacey most certainly did not have locked-in syndrome. So what we have for potentially believable issues is social anxiety and the autism diagnosis. Sources said that she was indeed diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is on the autism spectrum. According to the Nationwide Children's Org site, Asperger's syndrome, a form of autism spectrum disorder, is a developmental disorder. Young people with this have a difficult time relating to others socially, and their behavior and thinking patterns can be rigid and repetitive. Generally speaking, children and teens with Asperger's syndrome can speak with others and can perform fairly well in their schoolwork. However, they have trouble understanding social situations and subtle forms of communication like body language, humor, and sarcasm. They might also think and talk a lot about one topic or interest or only want to do a small range of activities. These interests can become obsessive and interfere with everyday life rather than giving the child a healthy social or recreational outlet. Most cases are diagnosed between the ages of 5 to 9, but rarely it can be diagnosed as young as 3. But really, the Asperger's label has been included into Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. And there are a whole host of symptoms and behaviors that we can get into another time because I myself am on the spectrum. What I'm interested in is the fact that Lacey's parents said that her autism just developed to become what they called severe autism, air quotes. That just within a year or less, when she was around 14 or 15 years old, this just happened. What I believe they might have been referring to is what is called regressive autism. An article in Autism Parenting Magazine, written by Amy Tobik, B.A., states, quote, Has your talkative, enraged, and very energetic child suddenly become quiet and uninterested? Does your child exhibit new, unusual habits? 
Have you noticed speech regression? If you answered yes, then he or she may have what's called regressive autism. End quote. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, or DSM-5, issued by the American Psychiatric Association, defines regressive autism as any type of autism spectrum disorder involving regression, including childhood disintegrative disorder. Regressive autism is a condition in which a child appears to develop typically, but suddenly begins to lose speech and social skills, some people call it autism with regression, setback type autism, or even acquired autistic syndrome. Signs and symptoms are usually seen between the ages of 15 months to a bit over two years old. The loss of skills can be rapid or slow. It is usually followed by a lengthy period of stagnant skill progression. What I want you to take from this is that the average observed age of the diminishing skills and overall regression is just over a year and a half old. Now best believe I dug around and dug around trying to find excruciatingly rare cases of regressive autism happening to teenagers and found nothing. Not one reliable case of that happening to a teenager. Also, autism cannot develop in adolescence or adulthood. It can be missed in people who are high-functioning, aka me, when they are young, but it is there. It isn't late onset. It's late detected, if you will. So while I can believe that Lacey could have had autism spectrum disorder, which could explain some of her behaviors that her peers described, it is disturbing to me that her mother would say that she just suddenly developed severe autism in her teens. Now, with regards to social anxiety, that's another story. Social anxiety disorder is an intense, persistent fear of being watched and judged by others. This fear can affect work, school, and other daily activities, making it hard to make and keep friends. But it is also highly treatable. For people with social anxiety disorder, everyday social interactions cause irrational anxiety fear, self-consciousness, and embarrassment. Symptoms may include excess fear of situations in which one may be judged, worry about embarrassment or humiliation, or concern about offending someone. Talk therapy, eventual exposure therapy, and antidepressants can help increase confidence and improve ability to interact with others. And a common type of anxiety in autism includes generalized anxiety disorder, which I have, fear of social situations or the social anxiety we just talked about, and, and a fear of open spaces and crowds, which we know as agoraphobia. Now that would make more sense to me, given only what little information we have. I am in no way trying to diagnose anything. I'm just saying it sounds plausible. Regardless of what was going on, it would appear that Lacey would receive no further medical care in any form after the age of 16. So why is that? Trying to give any level of the benefit of the doubt, I immediately think perhaps they couldn't afford the therapies or medications it would take to help her. What kind of jobs did they have? Well, let me tell you because again, you're going to be shocked. 
Sheila Fletcher, the mother, worked for authorities who might have helped her daughter as she was a police and court clerk at one point in the small nearby city of Baker. She then moved on to be the assistant to the city prosecutor in Zachary, Louisiana, which is only slightly larger than Baker. She also served on the city of Slaughter's Board of Aldermen. Now, I don't want to come off as being untoward, but something tells me she had, at the very least, adequate health care insurance and made enough of a wage to pay for therapies. As far as Clay goes, he was an officer of the nonprofit Baton Rouge Civil War Roundtable, whose mission is, quote, to educate and foster an appreciation for the sacrifices made by all during the Civil War, end quote. Now, I couldn't possibly tell you what his salary might have been, and he certainly had worked somewhere else during all of this. So again, I just really don't feel that it was necessarily a money issue. The parents insisting that she refused to get up off that couch because she was terrified to just doesn't sit with me very well. So what, you just throw your arms up in defeat and allow her to relieve herself into that couch to the point that it disintegrated underneath her inch by inch, year by year, until she had sunk into a hole nearly up to her shoulders, living in her own filth? People that knew the couple said they had no idea anything like that was going on. One woman commented on a Facebook post that she was in the church choir with Sheila and that no one had any idea. Most didn't even know the couple had a daughter in the first place. They never spoke of her to people or if someone who did know about Lacey asked about her, they were met with a quick, you know, oh, she's around, she still lives at home. And then, of course, they very quickly changed the subject. What is another slap in the face of Lacey's memory is that it took four months for Sheila and Clay to get charged with second-degree murder. Sheila refused to say whether or not she felt any remorse over Lacey, and in fact, the two released a statement saying they didn't want to discuss it any further because it was already too painful that they had lost their child. What? And... In their mugshots, you can clearly see that they had their home clothes on under their orange prison-issued scrubs. From what I read, that does not happen. No one is allowed to keep any of their personal belongings when they are arrested and booked, so why can you quite plainly see Sheila's blouse under her prison shirt? Or Clay's t-shirt under his? I mean, please, by all means, murder fam, feel free to enlighten me about this and tell me if this is ever allowed or not. Leave a comment or DM me. You know the drill. The grand jury were shown extensive images as well as video footage of the conditions in which Lacey was found. The coroner said that they were so horrific and upsetting that they had medics on standby for the 12 panel members. Once the grand jury got the full visual, it left everyone speechless. He described it like this, quote, When I was presenting the case and showed the pictures and gave the timeline, the expressions of the grand jury was utter shock, like the clock on the wall never moved again, end quote. Sheila and Clay have pled not guilty to second-degree murder charges and the death of their daughter, 
The trial date has been set for 2023, so we will have to keep an eye on this. As things progress and more information comes out, and don't forget, we have the Lori Vallow-Chad Daybell trial coming next year as well, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Listen, you guys know where I stand when it comes to children. I realized that Lacey was no longer a child when this happened to her, but she was their child. They were supposed to love and protect her. If she was having such a hard time, they should have reached out and gotten her the help she so desperately needed. Were they ashamed of her? Didn't want to be bothered with the dedication and discipline it takes to care for someone in need like she was? Tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. And as always, thank you so much, guys, for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 